Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. I would say Happy New Year as well, but since we have jumped straight out of 2020 and into the third national lockdown, there doesn't seem to be too much either happy or new about 2021 thus far. But uh, just because we all seem stuck in some sort of COVID-inspired stasis does not mean there is no change going on in the world, of course, or that there won't be in the future. And as it's still a little bit too early in the year to spend too much time talking about a changes present, changes in the future will be our topic today. So what does 2021 hold in store for defined benefit schemes, defined contribution schemes, and the state of law and regulation, etc.? Which means today I will be taxing the clairvoyant faculties of Sue Pemberton, Head of Technology and DC Consulting at Premier Pensions, and Mark Hommel, Senior Pensions Advisor at EY. So thank you both very much for joining me. If we start then with DB, I think, our own dearly departed editor, former editor now, Angus Peters, he wrote our prediction piece for DB in the last days of last month. Uh, Brexit was mentioned, its impact on sponsors emerging as a theme to watch out for. But of course, there is the lingering fallout from the pandemic. And the question there will be, will there be any sponsors left for Brexit to impact? Or will the rising tide of insolvencies drown us all? Hopefully it won't. But um, Mark, if we kick off with you on DB, if you were to name me maybe your top prediction for this year, as far as the evolution of the DB universe goes, what would it be? Well, I think we're going to continue to see economic uncertainty and the impacts of that, as you mentioned, both continuing pandemic Brexit, yes, has been processed now, but its knock-on impacts are still uncertain. And there is a lot of strain on and uncertainty on business. So covenant has always been critically important to decision-making within pension schemes, but it's never been more important than now. And it's front and centre of decision-making for trustees around how they're going to manage defined benefit pensions in 2021. Okay. And do you want to take us a little bit further into the issues of, around Covenant then moving forwards? I'm assuming it's going to be quite a worrying time for many. Uh, monitoring that consistently, I've always been told, is a very important thing. Take us a little bit more into in depth into Covenant, if you would. Yes. I mean, EY conducts um, a quarterly analysis of profit warnings uh, among listed UK companies. And it's no surprise that 2020 had a record number of profit warnings and that profit warnings, uh, the incidence of profit warnings are much higher among organizations that have defined benefit pension schemes than those that don't for many reasons, not because they've got pension schemes, but because they tend to be the older, more mature organizations for for whom defined benefit is, is more prevalent. Profit warnings and the sustainability and security of organizations continues to remain very unpredictable. Obviously, through last year and and into this year, we've seen uh, strain within uh, retail, travel, leisure. Some of the other industries like uh, technology have been less, less impacted. But I think we're going to continue to see uncertainty and things changing very, very quickly. It's amazing if you if you look at the results that organizations are producing, the volatility in them has never been greater. And I think the knock-on impact onto covenant is a covenant assessment could change very quickly. We've got the challenge that covenant assessment needs to increasingly look at what's going to happen to a sponsor going forward, and particularly over the duration for which the pension liabilities exist and for which the sponsors expected to be underwriting that. But it's all very, very unpredictable. And I do hope that 
DWP and government listened to the consultation, to the responses to the consultation that took place on the DB funding code, and that we don't get too formulaic in how covenant is assessed and over what duration it needs to be assessed, because I think each uh, situation is tremendously different. And is that sort of married then to the, the concern around the new funding codes, the, the, to the twin track approach? And as I understood it, I think the, the only time I've covered this, it's always been about whether the bespoke route is tied very closely to the fast track route or not. And presumably, if you want more flexibility, you would prefer to see a bespoke route that isn't tied quite so closely to the fast track route. Is that a related concern? Uh, to the issue of covenants, or is that something I might buy? No, it, it, it's highly related because we we don't want to see the dumbing down of of covenant assessment, and you can't assess a covenant through a formula uh, or a checklist, or indeed ignore covenant. And never has that been truer than now, given the the levels of uncertainty and the speed of disruption that we've seen, and uh, and will continue to see uh, going forward. And just finally, on, on the issue of, of covenant, I mean, and uncertainty particularly, obviously we've got the, this continuing issue about the pandemic and the responses we use to tackle the pandemic, but Brexit, we might hopefully one day in the near future never have to mention again. Um, is that something that's going to um, increase a certainty to a degree or is it overmatched by the uncertainty around the pandemic and other things? Well, I, I think now that the legislative side of Brexit has been put to bed, we can get on, the country's going to get on with implementing it and learning how to implement that. So I think at the moment, it remains uncertain about what that implementation might look like and the extent and speed to which the UK is going to start diverging from the regulatory environment it fell in with when part of the EU. So I think we're at the start of ending the uncertainty of Brexit, but it's going to remain for some while now. Excellent. I won't ask you to go into any detail on predictions for Brexit because I think the oracles at Delphi would have struggled to make too much of that. But um, we'll move on from from DB then onto DC and uh, the oracles that Stephanie Hawthorne spoke to for our D- DC predictions piece late last year um, suggested a torrent of single employer schemes are transferring into master trusts. There's the legislative and regulatory impetus toward consolidating small pots and all the rest of that. So um, uh, Sue, if you want to to take us away with this one, I mean, I'll ask you the same question is asked, Mark, if you had one major prediction for, for 2021 in the DC universe, what would that be? I think you've hit the nail on the head, Benjamin. It's the small pots issue is not going to go away. It's going to build. I've spoken to quite a few, both employers and trustees, and obviously the uncertainty around the economy is playing a part on that. Employers are concerned about the ongoing costs of managing their own DC schemes. The trustees are concerned about value for member assessments. And if it all goes through, all the legislation goes through as predicted, then uh, October will see the pressure build even further. But it's not overnight. And I think a lot of trustees and employers think they've got time. They think they've got a lot of time. And I think that that is potentially a bit of a mistake. Um, if you if you narrow down the number of trustee meetings between now and when they're going to have to fulfil that first chair statement with their value for member assessment and analysis, there's not many. And if they if they have some uh, some thoughts about them putting into effect remedial action, some of it is quite difficult um, to predict how their remedial action will impact those value for member assessments and analyses. So I think my prediction would be that interest will build. There will be more pressure on both trustees, employers, on their current fee structures. 
and so the pressure will build to, to take some action and understand whether they will pass those value for member tests and if not then what can they do about it and when should they start so i think there's going to be a lot of momentum building and um, we've already seen evidence of that and i'm um, assuming there is a degree to which this changes scheme by scheme but what should they be doing and when should they start you say people think they have more time than they actually do if you were to give as universal a set of advice as you possibly could to schemes and um, what should they be doing right now and in the immediate future to get themselves ready for october when there is this extra pressure as you say what we're doing, um, we're talking to our clients and prospects at the moment about doing an initial value for member assessment. So they understand whether their scheme will pass those value for member assessments. If they do, then they've got, I wouldn't say nothing to worry about because they have to do them every year and they have to uh, to comment on them and put the analysis in the, in the chair's statement. But they can breathe a little bit of sigh of relief a little bit. My prediction at the moment is that more schemes in that size will fail than pass. And the earliest they can get that warning, if you like, that early warning, the more time they then have to prepare and either adjust their scheme so they can pass or they can start thinking about what are they going to do as an alternative. I think, Benjamin, one of the issues that I have is having spoken to both lawyers and providers alike, then there are more complexities with these DC schemes than I think possibly is expected. You know, some of them have been have been running for decades. The rules have changed over time. They've got all sorts of issues that aren't going to be addressed just by picking that scheme up and plonking it into a master trust. And I think that is one of the areas that I don't think all employers and trustees fully grasp at the moment. A lot do. Don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, there's a lot who are very well aware that they've got complexities that have uh, emerged over the years with changes in legislation and changes to their, their rules. But there's a lot that aren't aware of this. And so all I can say is get planning as early as you possibly can. The market is going to be squeezed in terms of capacity. Both lawyers, providers or all lawyers, providers and advisors, I think when, when the deadlines start to hit, uh, are going to find them themselves incredibly busy. And my fear is that those less commercially attractive schemes won't get the terms in two, two and a half years' time that they'll get now because the capacity will be squeezed. Right, in which case I think we'll move on to the final topic of the day, which is law and regulation. And well, we could really go anywhere with law and regulation, I suppose. Couldn't we? <laughs> in my, my prediction would be, I suppose, that consolidation will pop up again. We've been waiting for super funds for quite some time. Um, and the pension super fund has expressed an interest around, for instance, the Arcadia schemes and has done for quite a while yet. But we're still waiting for developments on that front. But um, Mark, I mean, I don't know if you would agree with, with that as being one of the things to look out for in 2021, or are we going to be waiting a little bit longer? You asked me earlier about the implication of Brexit now having taken place. And I think you know, one of the implications is that desired regulation can now start to move again, because obviously in the last four and a half years since the referendum, the whole regulatory agenda of government um, has dwaddled along while everyone's attention has been focused on, on processing Brexit. So I think one of the implications is we are, all this regulation that's taken a long, long time to process will, will be moved along. So we're definitely going to see the pensions bill become an act that's going to mandate uh, requirements around uh, ESG and, and climate change uh, in reporting, funding requirements, uh, introduce tougher sanctions on directors of, of sponsors and on, on trustees when they do things that are wrong. 
We might see some changes on the tax agenda, of course. That comes up all the time, but you know, never more so than now when, when Chancellor needs to, to find some money. On the super fund agenda, I mean, that's not currently in, in the pensions bill. There's no doubt in my mind that government uh, remains hugely resolved to help bring super funds to market and create an environment in which trades can begin with super funds. And I do expect to see some progress in 2021, but I don't expect to see a regulatory resolution. I think the can will continue to be kicked further ahead. Sticking with with ESG for a moment then, I mean, I probably should have mentioned that one, that that's the guaranteed one. We've been covering it a lot last year and no doubt we'll be covering it even more this year. There's, there's always been this question whenever we have covered it as to standardization of, of metrics, how it's measured, how truly comparable one measuring system is to another one. I remember looking at a study by I think Alex Admins at the London Business School. They, they took the same company and ran it through two different rating systems. I think it was Facebook, which scored one ESG ratings provider, scored it in the top 10% for sustainability. And the other ratings provider scored it in the bottom 25% for sustainability at one and the same time, just because of the things that are being looked at. Is the new regulation that's coming through as part of the pension schemes bill and elsewhere, is that providing clarity, all of the clarity that's required? Or is there still, do you think that this question as to how much is really understood by people who are, uh, are looking into ESG, what, what the figures they're being shown perhaps by a ratings provider in fact mean? Is there still room for development as far as that's concerned? But the challenges you outline are not unique, but are not challenges being faced only by pensions schemes, of course. The challenges being faced by all asset owners who are looking how to account for ESG factors in their investment decisions. That doesn't fall into pensions regulation. It's a wider issue in an industry that's quite nascent in terms of working out what data is required to make well-informed decisions uh, and how that data can be collected and processed and shared. So I think it's a, that's, that's a very real challenge and one that will be solved over time as the science and the art gets developed generally around how to assess how ESG factors impact the creditworthiness, sustainability, and return on capital of assets in which we're considering investing. So I think it's going to remain remain a challenge. What is being required for pension schemes is that they're going to have to start reporting on things, reporting, having a philosophy, having, and reporting on what their philosophy is and their progress against it. I do question whether the extent to which trustees can get true value for their pension schemes in the absence of having access to quality data. But that's, as I say, that's not a that's not unique to the pensions industry. That, that's going to need to be addressed over time. And Sue, do you want to come in on this from, from the, maybe the DC side of things? I mean, are the same problems being faced uh, there as with, with the DB side? Or are there unique challenges or, or unique solutions that DC can provide? I think they're very similar in many ways. As Mark said, you know, there is, it's not unique to pensions, but when you look at the DC side, then providers are at very different stages with introducing the SG elements within their default funds. And some of them have, are using very different terminology. You know, if you have an ethical fund, an ethical fund is very, very much somebody's opinion about what is ethical and what is not. It's not something that is going to be universal across the, the business. Uh, it's not going to be universal across the membership. 
you know, where, where do you sit? What do you consider to be ethical? It might be very, very different to what myself or Mark think is ethical. So it's understanding what those red lines are. And some providers are very good at explaining it and some providers don't. Um, introducing ethical or ESG elements within default funds is becoming more important. And we are being asked at every level from member up around what their stance is, how they're addressing it, what their policies are, what their plans are to move into that. But there is less of a, of a regulatory requirement here. It's more the movement of public opinion, requirements by the market, requirements by our clients and, and the members. I did undergrad and postgrad degrees in philosophy and ethics. And the idea that you turn to an ethicist to get clarity on any particular matter is, is a novel one. I think when I explain it to members, I go through, okay, so if you if you just take one element of genetic engineering, you could be talking about breeding crops that are disease resistant, or you could be talking about designer babies. And there's a whole range of different levels between those two. Where does your red line sit? You know, and it's really difficult to, to say where that red line should sit because it's very much personal opinion. So in the DC world, I think the challenge is to actually communicate within the individual policy information where those red lines sit. And some do it very well. So it's it's just learning from the ones that do it well so that those others can um, can take the best and uh, and use it. There was one more very brief one, if you don't mind, Sue, that I meant to ask you before, but it slipped my mind until now. I mean, we, we heard from, I think, the governor of the Bank of England last year, the suggestion that maybe the regulations around DC should be loosened to enable DC pension parts to be able to invest in, for instance, liquids or infrastructure and the things that we require to, what's the phrase everyone is using now, build back better. Um, mm. Is that something that you anticipate happening or is that a pipe dream at this time? They're all talking about it. If, all, if you talk to any investment manager, there is a, a desire to include those types of investments. Whether it's for this year or, or the following year, I don't know. Um, I would really need my crystal ball to be working in uh, uh, over 100%. But I, I don't know whether it's going to come in this year. There's a lot of discussion to be had around how that would work within a C pension scheme. Benjamin, we are, of course, seeing continuous consolidation in the DC world. As the number of individual defined contribution funds reduces and the number of master trusts, I think there's something like 38 master trusts right now, that they're going to consolidate because that, that number of, of master trusts are not sustainable. So as the number of individual funds consolidates, then there will naturally be more scope for defined contribution arrangements to invest in assets like infrastructure. And, and I think, Mark, you're right with regard to the, the consolidation. I mean, we talked about the small pots earlier on with master trusts, but we're not just talking about master trusts. We're talking about the, the working group issued their report late last year where they're investigating two areas of pot follows member and, and consolidators for, for individuals as well. There's lots of different options that can be considered. And there's a lot of regulatory challenge around that. But the dashboard as well is seen to, in the mix. You know, they're all linked. There's all quite a few common features to the dashboard that will help with the consolidation of smaller pots. We have almost exactly run out of time, but there is time just at the end for our always a pensions angle, which I think, Sue, you have provided for us today. So do you want to take us away with the pensions angle? 
Thank you, Benjamin. One of the questions I always get challenged with by members is, why bother? I'm never going to reach retirement. I'm never going to be there to uh, benefit from my pension that I've saved. And it's the age getting older and older. And, uh, you know, it's not fair. And that it's not fair. They're increasing my pension age. I'm not going to be able to draw it for ages. Um, when, when I studying years ago, one of the things that I studied was when pensions were originally introduced back in 1909. And interestingly, it was for the over 70s at the time. So we're, we're sort of still not back at that level of a, being having to be age 70 before you reach your state pension. You had to have had a birth certificate to prove your age, which, of course, at that stage wasn't widespread. And you had to be a person of good character. So they had a whole list of issues that you had to have addressed. You couldn't have been imprisoned. You hadn't. You couldn't have been uh, detained under the Inebriates Act. And of course, it was also means tested. So whilst there's a lot of grumbles around the state pension that it's not fair, we're having to wait longer, cast your mind back to those poor people who had to wait till they were 70. Back in 1909, when their expectant age was far, far lower than, uh, than it is today. It's certainly one way the government could save money is bringing that back again. But um, for now, that is the end of this episode. So thank you very much both to Sue and to Mark for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Uh, if you've been vaccinated by that point, good on you. And if you haven't, hopefully you will be soon. But um, as always, please continue to like, spread and share the podcast like it was a virus. No vaccine could combat. Uh, we will see you in two weeks' time. Thank you again for joining us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.